During this season of Lent, as we prepare for Easter, we are exploring the concept of discipleship through a series called All I Know Is This. And each week, we're looking at a different topic through scripture. Today's topic is All I Know Is This About Who God Chooses. And now, as we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your holy word, for the ways that it nourishes and inspires us, and for also for the ways that it challenges us to live faithfully as your disciples. In Christ's name, amen. Our first lesson this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of this, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. 
but she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Tel Aviv, Israel, at a restaurant called Blackout, all of the workers are visually impaired, and the restaurant itself operates in pitch darkness, so that whether or not the diners can see, they experience their meal as if they were blind. The food at Blackout gets rave reviews, and so does the darkness. Because most diners discover that eating in total darkness enables them to experience the complexities and the flavors of the food in a whole new way. Most of us depend on sight to guide us through the world, to show us where we're going, to help us choose and take each next step to assess the people and things we see in front of us, and to make determinations about whether they are good, bad, or neutral. But when our vision is limited, our other senses become heightened, and we experience familiar things in a whole new way. One of the things I keep hearing this week about the coronavirus is that we are fighting an enemy we can't see. The virus is invisible in many cases until it's too late. Suddenly, we can't trust our sense of sight to guide us. And that is unnerving, disconcerting, even scary. When it is time for Samuel to choose a new king for God's people of Israel, he is unnerved and even fearful because the first king he picked, Saul, didn't work out so well, even though Saul looked the part. The Bible describes Saul as being head and shoulders above other men. Literally, he is tall, dark, and handsome. But looks were deceiving, and Saul turned out to be an ineffective leader. When God rejects Saul as king and instructs Samuel to go find a new king, Samuel is not only grieving the future he had hoped for, he is also afraid. What will Saul do to him if word gets out that he has chosen 
a new king to replace Saul. But despite his limited vision, Samuel goes where God sends him and Samuel listens as God rejects not one, not two, not three, but seven of Jesse's sons. No matter how handsome or capable they appear to be, God says no. Finally, when Samuel asks if there are any other sons, Jesse says, well, there is the youngest, using a diminutive Hebrew word that means something like the runt of the litter. This is the one, David, the baby of the family, the one everyone has written off. This is the one whom God chooses. To be sure, David will not be a perfect king. During his long reign, he makes some huge mistakes that have devastating consequences. But this moment in David's story, when God says no to all of David's older brothers who at least appear to be more capable and more suited to the job, surely this moment gives David the strength and courage he needs to lead God's people through the best and worst of times. Whatever happens, David knows God chose him. God chose him. God chose him. I bet something similar happened to the young peasant girl whose life was upended when she learned she would carry a baby she neither wanted nor had anticipated. The angel's announcement to Mary was life-changing, unnerving, terrifying, grief-inducing. How could it not be? For life as Mary knew it was over after that visit from the angel. But something else had changed too, something that would offer Mary the strength and courage she would need for the wondrous and difficult days ahead. She would know. God chose her. God chose her. God chose her. Like all of you, I am reeling from the way the ground has shifted beneath our feet in just the last couple of weeks. At church, the staff and leadership was busy making plans and preparing the path ahead, confident we knew where we were going, or at least where we hoped we would end up. In my family, kids were planning activities for school, practicing for a new baseball season and a spring orchestra concert, preparing for all of the activities around eighth grade graduation this spring. My husband was interviewing for three jobs while getting us moved into a new home where we were eager to welcome friends and neighbors and all of you. We were busy making plans, preparing the path ahead, confident we knew where we were going or at least where we hoped to end up. But now we're all trying to figure out how to navigate each day when we aren't sure where we're headed anymore and we don't know how long or difficult the journey might be. The usual markers we look for to help us know we're on the right path aren't anywhere in sight. 
And suddenly, we have more time together with family members than we've had in a long time. And while we're aware of just how much we have to be grateful for, the truth is, what's happening is incredibly disorienting. We can't see what's next for us as families, as a community, or even for our whole world. When we can't see the next step, when our normal choices are no longer there and the world shifts under our feet, something remarkable happens. Our other senses take over to help us discover things we had not noticed before. We gain the capacity to see in a new way, a way more akin to how God sees. We have the opportunity to see beneath the surface, to let go of all that our culture has told us is so important, our individual achievements, our communal or national successes, our efficiency and our busyness. Suddenly, we see that we are all in this together. As families trying to do work and school under the same roof, as a nation asking individuals to make difficult choices to serve the common good, as a world collectively reeling from this thing that has impacted all of us, nations and peoples, suddenly this virus we cannot see has shown us that if we look beneath the surface, we discover we are not so different, not so divided. We see that, in fact, we are all one. We are together and interconnected on a planet that feels a lot smaller than it did just weeks ago. The crew members who flew bombers during the Second World War flew long missions deep into enemy territory, all the while being the target of the enemy's machine guns and rockets. Most World War II airmen flew 25 to 30 missions and had only a one in four chance of completing a tour of duty. But these bombing runs were critical to the success of the war. So the Allied command needed to figure out how to cut down the number of casualties. Eventually, the solution they came up with was that all the planes should be more heavily armored to reduce the damage brought by flak and enemy fighter planes. But if you armored the whole plane, it would be too heavy to fly. So they had to figure out strategically where to put more armor. They did this by counting the bullet holes on the planes that returned from their missions. And when they did, they discovered the damage was concentrated in three areas, the fuselage, the outer wings, and the tail. Now, the obvious answer was that these were the areas that needed more shoring up, more armor. But it turned out that was wrong. The command had only looked at the planes that returned from their missions. And if a plane made it home with bullet holes in the fuselage, what that actually meant is that the fuselage could withstand that kind of damage. 
where extra armor was needed, was on the sections of the planes that on average had fewer bullet holes when they returned, the cockpit and the engine. Because what that meant was that the planes with extensive damage to those parts were the ones that never made it home. Right now, if we only look at what is right in front of us, we risk missing the deeper lesson. In the midst of this crisis, if we focus only on the damage that is obvious, the terrifying rates of illness and death, the shortages of critical medical equipment, the losses in the stock market, the closings and layoffs, if we focus only on what's going wrong, we might forget the very thing that offers us the strength and the courage we need for such a time as this. God chooses us. God chooses us. God chooses us. All of us. God chooses our broken, struggling world and every single person in it. God chooses us to lead and to bear God's love and compassion. Knowing this allows us to see the goodness in this moment. The medical personnel who keep going to work every day despite serious risks. The teachers figuring out how to teach online and the parents who have become their children's teachers. Workers of all kinds learning to work remotely. Neighbors checking in on one another. All those who are using the internet to connect and comfort rather than divide and offend. And the churches and other places of worship that have closed up our sanctuaries and classrooms because we have remembered. Churches aren't buildings. Churches are people. We are the church, no matter where we are. We are the ones called to see as God sees and to share the good news with all the world that even now, especially now, God chooses us. Amen.